Hi everyone, Liz here again. Welcome back to Shapes of Grief. It's a new year, a new season, and I'm really excited to be bringing you some of the conversations that I've been recording over the last few weeks since we finished up season one in December. Just to say thank you so much for your support, for listening to the podcasts, for the reviews you've written, the ratings you've given. I'm really grateful. Um, I'm beyond happy that the podcast has been listened to almost 30,000 times now. And I hope you'll stick with us for season two and continue to benefit from these really important conversations. We're starting with something a little different. Last Wednesday, I facilitated a beautiful screening of the documentary A Love That Never Dies by Jane Harris and Jimmy Edmonds in my local theatre here, the Whale Theatre. We recorded the introduction and the question and answer session, so perhaps you'd like to join us for that. You'll hear my introduction and then an invitation to download the movie. You can download it for $3.99 and you could pause this recording if you wish and do that. And then we followed it with the question and answer session, which was very rich and very moving for everybody there. So enjoy this and we'll see you next week for episode two of season two of Shapes of Grief. Welcome back, everyone. everybody. You are so very welcome here tonight to this evening in the Whale Theatre. This is the first of several events that we hope to hold this year around the theme of grief. A couple of years ago, an elderly gentleman came into my practice here in Greystones. The woman that he had loved for over 50 years had died and he was completely bereft. He came in and he looked at me imploringly and he said, It's been three weeks and I still feel awful. What's wrong with me? (laughs) So I share this little anecdote because it really sums it up. How little we understand about grief until we are the ones experiencing grief. You'll have to excuse me reading from my notes. Is that okay? I didn't want to risk forgetting something. So tolerating even a day without our loved ones can feel impossible. And as I look around the theatre tonight, I realise... There's very few faces here that I don't know. I know many of you. I know many of your stories of loss, of grief. I know the names of many of your loved ones who have died. I know how you have struggled and fought to work through your grief and find ways to navigate your grief and how some of you are finding ways to move forward in your grief as well. We often associate grief with death, but grief is vast and multifaceted. Grief can manifest when we lose a job, When a relationship ends, if we get a difficult diagnosis or someone we love dies, a child, a sibling, a partner, a friend, when we have a miscarriage or when the much-wanted baby just isn't born. For some of us who have had multiple bereavements, sometimes it can feel that everybody we love has died. Sometimes our grief can be anticipated over months or years where there's a chronic illness, or at other times it can just come out of nowhere in an instant and turn our world upside down into some weird alternative universe which simply does not belong to us. Grief presents us with this awful paradox of needing to accept a reality that we simply don't want to be true. We do know that hearing each other's stories of grief and loss can help us understand grief as part of our common humanity. And that can help us to feel a little less isolated. Grief really is too enormous to bear alone. We need each other. So while this documentary features mainly parents who have lost a child, everybody here is welcome. Whatever way grief has shown up for you in your life, we are all bereaved or will be bereaved. And this is why I think we're here tonight to make sense of grief, to talk about grief, to learn how to be a better support to ourselves and each other's as we're grieving. 
I started the podcast Shapes of Grief 12 months ago. I had no idea would anybody listen, would, would anybody want to hear stories of grief and loss. And in 12 months, we've produced 38 episodes. Many of you are here tonight, actually. If you've been listening to the podcast, you might recognize some faces. And it's been played 30,000 times. So that says it all. We have such a need to hear each other's stories so that we don't feel so alone or so crazy in our grief. And this is global. I get messages from California, Canada, India, Australia, of people saying, thanks for putting it out there. I really need to hear this. It's getting me through. <laughs> I'm not finished. <laughs> that was Jimmy Edmonds. You'll meet him shortly. So, how do we remember our loved ones with love rather than pain? We know that while death ends a life, it does not end a relationship. So how do we move forward with our grief and continuing our bonds with our loved ones? We need to create communities where the words dying, death, and grief are not taboos, but they're a call to action to all around us in our friendships, our families, our work environments, and our communities to come out and bring kindness and vegetable lasagna in abundance. We can come to learn that grief and joy are not opposing forces. We can experience both, sometimes even simultaneously, and we may eventually reach a place where our grief while rarely completely gone, could be manageable and could coexist with our ability to remember with love and to even feel moments of joy again. We need to build compassionate communities where grief can be expressed, heard and held. Grief should unite us and not isolate us. So before we begin, before I introduce you to the filmmakers, I just want to thank a couple of people who are here tonight. Ross McParland, a wonderful man in our community who owns the Whale Theatre, who was very keen to provide this evening for anyone in the community who was grieving. Orla Keegan from the Irish Hospice Foundation. Um, I did my master's in bereavement there a couple of years ago. Orla's carrying down the back there. And it's thanks to her knowledge and wisdom and integrity that I'm doing the work that I'm doing today. So big thanks to Orla. To all of you here who have dared to come, to engage with us and collaborate with us, and opening up more conversations about grief and loss. And with each conversation, hopefully making the world a little softer and a little kinder for each other. And of course, the big gratitude tonight goes to Jane Harris and Jimmy Edmonds from The Good Grief Project. They have used their profound grief following the death of their beloved son, Josh, who died nine years ago last week. And they've used their grief to support and nourish other bereaved people giving us this beautiful documentary. And they've flown here from the UK today just to be with us tonight. Um, they'll be around after the screening. We're going to have a question and answer session. I hope you'll all participate. And I'd just like to hand you over now to Jane and Jimmy, who want to say a quick hello before we screen. A huge thank you to everyone for turning up. What an audience. We're really knocked out. Um, Liz kind of summed it up, but, you know, grief needs to be honoured, and that's what we're here for, and grief comes in many forms. So thank you, and we look forward to the Q&A after the screening. Um, yeah, wonderful. Enjoy the film. Enjoy the film. <laughs> So at this point of the evening, we screened the documentary, A Love That Never Dies, made by Jane Harris and Jimmy Edmonds. You can watch this now yourselves if you wish. It's available on thegoodgriefproject.co.uk. You can watch it for 3 dollars I think it costs. This really beautiful, moving documentary on parental grief uh, that really encapsulates grief no matter how you are bereaved. So do take a look. And we follow the screening with a question and answer session, which uh, we'll play for you now also. So let's just give our appreciation one more time to Jane and Jimmy for producing this beautiful documentary and this beautiful gift to us. Yeah. 
So the rest of the evening is unscripted, and this is where we're going to have a little questions and answers session. And it's your turn to ask any questions that you might have. Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here, and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. Jane and Jimmy meet with bereaved people all the time, all around the world and have a lot of wisdom to share. So if you have a question, nothing is too silly to ask. So, you know, do raise your hand. We have a, a mic that will be going around the room and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So like I said, just make sure you're breathing. Sometimes when we're watching um, something so impactful like that, we forget to breathe. So feel your, your bums on the seats and your feet on the floor and do take a breath and just check in with your body, make sure that you know, you're nice and relaxed, okay? Oh yeah, Orla. Um, i surprised, I didn't think I was gonna say anything, but I just want to say a really beautiful film. I don't know what I expected, but it was really beautiful. And common humanity is what stands out. And the fact that you included all those other children as well as your own, I just thought that was beautiful. So, thank you. Thanks, Orla. Thank you, thank you. I think, um, People often ask us, why do we share our stories? Um, and there's a simple answer to that, that we share our stories because we can. <laughs> and if we don't, nothing really changes. And we need for things to change. We need to be able to be more open and available to the pain of grief and loss. And that with that expression, however hard, comes an acceptance within ourselves and within others that it's okay to articulate it um, and you know every time I watch the film I think this is my private story I don't want other people to know it I mean I'm a therapist as well so that's a really complicated thing isn't it when you're a therapist and you share private stories but actually it's about well-being as well and self-care and self-compassion and I just think we have to face the realities that bad things happen to so many of us and unless we actually make ourselves available to what it means in the real world, nothing really changes. Anybody else have a question in the audience? Or even a comment about what you've seen tonight? Caroline, down here, Rita, down at the front. Okay, there's somebody back here. Oh, yeah? Minutes. I'll go down to Caroline, you go down the back. Um, as a bereaved parent, um, I was just wondering, going on a journey like that, you know, traveling to all the places that your son traveled. You know, my son lived abroad for a long time before he passed away. And I often wonder if I did something like that, does it make it easier for you to um, come to terms with what has happened? You know, um, there's so much, he lived for nine years abroad and there's so much of his life and so many places that he traveled that I, I never visited, and I'm wondering, did that help you in some way? Um, in, in many ways, we got to know Josh after he died from the many tributes from his friends that we didn't know. So, for instance, his funeral was um, full of eulogies from a lot of his friends because he'd moved away from home, been living in London. And um, we just got to know lots of things about him that we didn't know before. When we went to Vietnam, that took us two years to go back to after his death to get to Vietnam to see the place where he had died. Me and his older brother, Joe, wanted to go a little earlier, actually. I mean, I was, I was ready to go on the plane that day. We heard the news to go out to Vietnam just to collect his body, but also to be in the place where, where, where he had died. It felt really important for me to do that. But what with all the confusion and, you know, basically that initial fog of, of grief that, you know, you haven't got a clue what's going on. So um, luckily there were people around that would steady, um, would steady us and, you know, said that's not a really clever thing to do anyway. But it took us two years in the end to get there. Um, 
And I, I, th I think it was really important, not just the business of going there, but going there as a family. So there was the, the, you know, the four of us that are left in this family went out there to, to, together. And I think it was, it was, that was, a, it was an important familial sort of process in which um, we jointly came to recognize that we could witness each other's sort of presence in that on, on, on that roadside um, and I think for me that was the most Im most important thing and yes it helped big time it really did help big time and we'd met some of the friends that he'd been traveling with who then came to England um, um, you know and, and we haven't seen them since but the, the point is that they came to England there were two Dutch boys and an American guy that he'd been traveling with um, and they they yeah, they, they, they came over on one of his birthdays and, you know, we sort of celebrated his birthday and we got to know them. Um, and that business of connecting with the people that Josh knew um, was something that is, you know, sort of like, yeah, I mean, it was really very rewarding. But it's also sort of like a sort of acknowledgement that he's living on in all of those people. Thanks, Jimmy. Yeah. Just going to add to that, Liz, that, you know, what's right for one another person and that everyone does it so differently. And I think the whole film and our whole process has been about recognising that, you know, everyone, every family, every individual has their way of dealing with their grief, you know, and there's so many ways, but there's no right or wrong way. Um, but it certainly did help us to, I suppose, say goodbye because, you know, because Josh had died abroad, away from us, we had to find some way of saying goodbye, which isn't about closure, because as the film explains, you know, that's the dirty C word for us. Um, it's about openings, not closure. You know, you're, when your child dies, you don't stop loving them, do you? You know, when someone dies who you love, you carry on loving them. And that's not weird. It's not dysfunctional. It's not complicated. It's just how it is. Um, but everyone experiences that differently. But there's an awful lot of external pressure to do it the right way. And actually, we would say there is no right way. There's so many different ways. Thanks, Jane. Hi, thank you. Um, I suppose the comment that I want to make is I'm a bereaved uh, spouse. And 15 years later, the what I experienced was loneliness. And so coming to something like this tonight and hearing somebody being able to tell their story makes a huge difference because it's a really lonely place to arrive into. And I remember doing a, a TV or a radio interview once with a, somebody else who had been bereaved at a similar age. And we both reached the same conclusion. It's like you've lost your community and you're looking for a new community that is meaningful again. So something like this, I think, thank you, because it does, it does open up that community and, and create a forum. I think the word, lo the, the word lonely is the right word because the loneliness is just, it's a sort of, it's very difficult to differentiate between lonely or anxious or pain when you're in the initial stages and it's so profoundly agonizing. Um, and to hear other people's stories, I think that brings us back to this idea that sharing stories changes attitudes. Um, but, you know, it's not okay for us to be lonely in grief, is it? You know, because so many of us grieve and so many of us are afraid of grieving in the wrong way. Um, and there isn't really a wrong way um, or a right way. There's just a way of doing it that brings comfort. Uh, all our people that we interviewed seem to talk a lot about how do they fit in? How do they find a place to belong again? And actually, I think that's a double pressure on the bereaved, you know, People don't know what to say to them. They want them to be how they were before the death of their loved one. But, of course, you're never the same as you were. You're different. And I think that's okay as well. But that's hard for our friends and families to accept. And with the best will in the world, you know, there's so many well-intentioned people. But I think we have to accept that we really need to deal with the discomfort that is grief and let people do it without trying to fix them. And, and then it's a less lonely place for the bereaved. Yeah, thanks for that comment. Um, that's why I started the Shapes of Grief podcast. You know, sitting here in Greystones, meeting different bereaved people going through all sorts of grief, 
and feeling that they were alone in it and that nobody gets it. And each person that would come in was feeling so alone and so isolated um, and, and had lost their tribe and couldn't find anyone who would get it. You know, as Jane says in the movie, they'd just be getting the platitudes and people trying to silver line their experience. So there are a lot of people, you know, who do experience that isolation and certainly projects like A Love That Never Dies and The Shapes of Grief and many other uh, evenings that are on. The Irish Hospice Foundation run evenings on loss and grief and it's so important to get out there even though getting out there might be the last thing we want to do. Um, but to get out there and realize we aren't alone is so important. And to hear someone else who's having the same crazy experience we are, or the same irrational thoughts, or the same loneliness. So great you're here tonight, listening to that. Any other questions at all? I know there's probably several, and you're wondering, will I raise my hand or not? Yeah, Geraldine, is it? Hi. Um, I'm, my question is, um, I'm just wondering if you'd like to share what it might be like or your experience of uh, everybody in the, in the house, you know, um, grieving together and that the journey, mm. what that's like when everybody is perhaps can be feel isolated, even, you know, even though you're together in, in, your, in your own grief space. So the question is, what is it like to grieve as a family as a family, as a family where you're conscious of your um other son and daughter mm. you know? well i'll answer that as a mother it's terribly hard you know because i couldn't stop feeling protective and worrying about the impact on my daughter and on my son and on jimmy and that means that you neglect your own grief um, and i remember feeling a great sense of relief at times when i was alone but I also realized over time that it was really important that I became more transparent about my grief because otherwise I'm not modeling the reality of what my pain was like. I was being this heroic kind of person. Um, you know, once again, we all do that differently. But I think there was a real closeness that developed because we looked to each other. We somehow managed to look to each other. And I think it's very easy to look away when there's a lot of pain, because it's too, like I say in the film, sometimes I would see Jimmy's pain and I didn't want to see it. Like our friends would look at us and they didn't want to see our pain, they want to see us getting on with our lives again. However, the truth is, the pain is real and the pain needs to be shared and then you move forward. But it takes so much energy and it's exhausting. Joey. Um, Josh's older brother um, used to, he doesn't so much now, but he, he used to come up to me and he said, listen, um, it's so much worse for you as a dad than it is for me as a brother. Um, and I struggled with that. I struggled with um, the idea that other members of my family thought that, you know, somehow or other they'd, they'd got off lightly. <laughs> And um, um, I don't know, um, it's, it's not one of those things that we sort of actually sort of like sort of meet head on, you know, in, an, in everyday life. Um, both of our surviving children live away from home, so it, it is just me and Jane at home. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's not easy. It's, it, is, it, it can be, even now, nine years on, it can be you know, sort of quite lonely. I think I'm the sort of person that would probably um, pr probably more comfortable with my, m with my own company anyway. Um, and, um, I mean, coming here to Greystones, actually, is a total eye-opener for me because I, look, this, this community that you've got here, what this is, you know, the whole thing here of everybody coming around, I've, I mean, I've read Ruth's book as well, and the whole business about, you know, the tribe that you guys all have got this thing going. And I think it's fantastic. I don't know, somehow I wish I could find it in myself to join in with that sort of thing, but sometimes, you mm, know, Jimmy. I, I, you know I'm, a, I'm a bit more like Denise, you know, it's my pain, you know, you nobody know, else will really know about it, mm. so I'm going to keep it to myself. I think sometimes what happens as well is people try to protect each other in families, that's what I would see more commonly. You know, I don't want to grieve in front of them because I don't want to upset them. And what happens is this elephant, you know, in the room 
grows in a house where everybody is grieving privately because um, they don't want to upset each other. But actually, that just causes so much suffering because the energy it takes to mm. suppress your grief and keep it back, it's very painful. You know, whereas when you can find a way just to be honest with each other and allow yourselves that space to grieve together, it is so much easier and you can be there to comfort each other rather than grieving in isolation. I think for siblings as well, you know, they're often the invisible mourners because they're trying so hard to be strong for their parents. So, you know, not only have they lost a brother or a sister, but they've lost their parents. Um, and they need to be allowed to be in pain, you know, because... And sometimes that involves, I think, going to see someone outside the family who's neutral because they'll, you know, it's really hard to say to your child, you know, I'm fine, you're fine, we're all fine, but actually we're not, you know, and, and just speak, seeking out that neutral space can be really liberating for them to be able to, um, I suppose, not protect us as their parents. Yeah, I'd like to concur with that notion that what we're doing is protecting one another. And, um, you know, because that's, you know, because we love one another, we, we, we care for each and we don't want to see the other one in pain. Neither do we want to exhibit the sort of, um, you know, awkward, you know, that, that, that sort of deep grief. Because um, you don't want to burden the other person either, you know. And so it's a, it's a, it's a difficult dynamic to, to, mm. to, to get round. Thanks. You know, I wonder if people have felt, you know, something around this idea that there's a sell-by date to grief, that your time's up. I mean, a number of my clients, you know, who say to me, well, my time's up. And I say, what do you mean? But they feel that they've had their time and they've got to kind of put on the mask and go out there in the world um, and present as if it's done and dusted. And I wonder if people have any thoughts about that because it's a huge pressure, I think. Yeah, down over here, Rita. Rita to Rita. Mm -hmm. Coming with the mic there to you. Hi, I lost two babies full term <laughs> and my husband. Um, I think for me the hardest thing has been um, the hurt that other people have caused. Mm. Um, I, I know maybe they haven't caused it deliberately, um, but it has added so much. Um, very close friends, very close family, um, people that I can't make a decision not to be with. Um, maybe I, I think if I could not be with them, I would make the decision not to be with them. Um, but there are very close people that I cannot not be with. And I, I just wonder how you would yeah. offer advice on that. Okay, I'm so sorry. And I really get what you're saying about that because I think that you know, it's an added pressure. It's it's secondary grief, isn't it? It's secondary loss. You know, those people who you want to be alongside you, who can't be alongside you. And I suppose what I've learned is that, I mean, in the nine years since Josh died, that sometimes you do have to step away. I've stepped away from a lot of people. I'm not angry with them anymore. I'm sad. But I think that it only hurts me if I remain alongside them because they can't do it. They're too afraid. They're not able to necessarily step up to the idea that this sort of thing happens. Um, but the pain that you feel when you feel that isolation and that loneliness is excruciating again, isn't it? Um, and... I suppose that's why we do what we do. That's why we run grief retreats and that's why we make films because so many people say what you say. So many people feel what you feel. You are so not alone. And so my advice is find the people who get it. Find the people that allow you to take your mask off and just be yourself and just try and protect yourself. I suppose from the well-intentioned people who can't do that. Mm -hmm. I'd like to just add to that as well. You've brought up about secondary loss there, Rita. You know, often when somebody dies or there's a separation or whatever grief there is, that's just one thing. But that one thing causes such a ripple effect. You know, it affects relationships within the family. As you said, Jane, you know, if a child dies, often the siblings lose their parents as well as their sibling. Um, if the parents are grieving deeply and unavailable to the child. The, the, the list for your Christmas cards can shrink. The, the ripple effects of one loss are massive. 
and you can feel them over and over again in so many different ways. Any other questions or comments? Yeah, what's your name? Hi, Wayne. Uh, I think it was uh, Jordan's parents were talking about statistically, um, you know, couples can break up after uh, the loss of a child. Just from your own experience and from those who you spoke to, can you comment a little more on why you think that is? Uh, yeah, I'll hand you over to the therapist. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're still together. <laughs> the reason we present together is kind of to bust that myth. But of course, if a relationship's in trouble and a child dies, that relationship is going to be in crisis, isn't it? Um, and all relationships, regardless, take work. It doesn't sound very romantic, does it? But, you know, I think to be in a relationship does take work. And when you're traumatized in a relationship, communication can shut down. And I think that for us, certainly, you know, we've heard a lot of people say that, they, you know, one woman told us she went to her GP after her child had died. And the GP said, well, you know, you're not going to stay together. You know, if, you're, if your child dies, you'll split up, you know. And that's really alarming. That's an added pressure, isn't it? Without any kind of sense of, look, let's just think about this. Let's unpick it. Let's think about where you're at in your relationship. What did you need before this happened? What do you need now? Um, and I think that by opening those conversations, it's really productive and constructive. I think that that family in particular is very complex, isn't it? Because it's about blame and guilt. Um, and it's a really tough story, but they were totally committed to trying to work it out. But you could read it in their faces. It was going to be hard, hard work. I mean, I think that um, anything I can add to that really is, that, and it's a, it's a truism, isn't it, that grief changes you. It changes you fundamentally. Um, and, w um, and I mean, if it's a really, you know, d d traumatic loss, um, that but at the same time, it's going to change your relationships. So I'm thinking back to the time when Josh was born. And that changed our relationship. I, mine and Jane's relationship changed at the moment when we started a family. We came, became members of a family. So inevitably, that relationship is also going to change when we lose a member of that family. Um, um, I don't know, I've got no answers to that, but that's just an observation that um, because we are always, always in relationship, that however much we are feel changed or other people see us as being changed, it's those relationships that have changed. And I think if we concentrate on how it is that we are behaving, relating, um, and, and speaking and loving one another, and how, and, and, and how that can change because of circumstance, then um, I don't know, therapists, but I think that we might be on a better chance of sorting stuff out if we see ourselves as being in relationship rather than individual people that have, you know, somehow or other mm -hmm. had a whole load of life shit thrown at them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, um, yeah, it is hard work, but, you know, we have, whenever possible, always um, done the Q&As as a couple because... You know, I do really believe that couples are under so much pressure. You know, people believe this, that relationships are doomed. But so many people say that their relationships are deeply strengthened, you know, as they find their way through the trauma and as they learn to trust again. Because if you think about it, when something like this happens, you lose your belief in the world. This isn't supposed to happen. It's back to front. Your child is not supposed to die before you. So you're, you're fundamentally floored. And with that goes your belief systems out the window, so you've got to build trust again and belief, and that takes time and energy, particularly when you're traumatized. And I suppose that to be a bereaved parent means you are traumatized for a while. It's not a bad word. Trauma is a real part of being bereaved for so many people. But when it's in the wrong order of things and when it's untimely, trauma is just what it's about. And you have to work on that and address it as couples, as individuals, as parents, as siblings. Thanks, Jane. Any other questions there? We might have time for one more. Yeah, Kathleen, the mic coming down to you there now. Hi, thanks. Thanks for the, uh, I'm here. Hello. 
Hi. She doesn't see me. Yeah, that was a, a beautiful um, documentary on your travels and revisiting um, the site of the death of your beautiful son. Um, <clears throat> for me, uh, I lost uh, my children, but it was through the hospital situation. Um, and I just, for once, saw a difference there, where you took off in your um, car and, you know, it was like, to say, an adventure of a different kind to, to, to revisit what had happened. It was something for you. For me, um, my, my three children died in a hospital setting. And so um, this was like, I suppose, a setting that we had had for years and years because they had a, they had a condition. Um, they had cystic fibrosis. So uh, I see something there that maybe I have lost in some way um, because when I uh, pass the hospitals, two different hospitals, uh, it's different now because I see that as the place where a lot of sadness happened and where they were made very well on many occasions when they had to receive medicine and antibiotics. But it's very different. It's a very different situation. So I suppose um, it's, it's nice in some way to have another place to go um, because when you pass a hospital or you enter the door of a hospital, you get the smell, you get the senses of that, that day, that moment when you lost your beautiful child. And just it's something that I, something different that I've, that I've got from the, the film today. Also in our house, um, just getting back to the point of um, where, where do you put your sadness at home and living with uh, your children who have to go through that burden of losing their, their loved one. We had a dog, we got a dog in after my first child died and the dog seemed to absorb somehow and distribute peace to us. And it was through that, without talking about anything else, that in some way we got through a lot because our attention was there with Brefney, our beautiful um, border collie. And, and, and she helped us out through those moments and through those days and years and months. So, um, yes, thank, thank you very you much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so sorry about your three children, and I, I really take on board what you say. You know, it's 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 different, and yet it's similar, but it's so different. And, you know, there's something about finding a place to go. You know, because Josh died abroad, there was nowhere to go. And for you, you're saying there's a hospital, but it has associations, but it's uncomfortable at times. And Yes. Indeed. Of sadness and sorrow written over it. Yes, indeed. And I suppose for us, maybe uh, the kids' idea of planting a tree was very therapeutic and helpful for us. It took a while. Well, it didn't take that long. But, you know, as, as that tree grew, we began to feel a sense of connection with it. And that was the place we went. And that became part of us. It became woven into the fabric of ourselves, almost. Um, and I remember in the early, in the early years, We'd often wake in the morning, wake in the middle of the night, and we'd go up to the tree because we didn't know where to go, and we'd go with high anxiety, and we'd feel sick with the pain mm. of grief, and we'd sit at the tree, and we just didn't know what to do, but bit by bit, you know, year by year, that's lessened. The tree's there, and it's growing, and it's strong, thank goodness. Mm. But we go there less often, but we know it's there. And symbolically, I suppose it's another ritual for us. But you know, I don't know if that sort of idea is helpful or not. Thank you. That, that is very helpful. You know, be before uh, my children died, they had many years at home. So they had a tree each. Okay. So in fact, that grief you're talking about started 30 years ago. And um, my last child died a year ago. So those trees are symbolic and I too walk there and you know I smell them and I I shake the the jingles that are hanging from them and all of that so and, and there's something very deep rooted in in that memory that that helps right to this day and even brings back when they lived because again it happened many years ago and it was always there the fear of death yeah. through those years so it's uh it's now come to a close, not, not a close in that sense,
but it's now so different because they're not here and they're gone, and but they are here, yeah. but it's in a different way that they're manifested. It's Thank beautiful. You. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathleen. There's one more question, yeah? Well, actually, Jane, you've already kind of answered it in your last response. I, I was just really interested in the what your thoughts are about death and ritual. And you've created a really beautiful film. And I'm just really interested in the relationship between creativity and grief. And how, if a family can't speak to one another, how a ritual or making something beautiful can be a way, a kind of a, a voice through the grief. Definitely. <laughs> You've got to fill the void in some way. Um, and because we all know that, you know, this, this stuff has changed us fundamentally. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm imagining that most people in this room are bereaved in one way or another, and I know some very, very fine examples of the way in which, you know, people have created new things out of the out out of this devastation, and um, I don't know that there's another way <laughs> of actually sort of surviving this stuff, frankly, and you know whether or not it's planting trees, or you know, or writing books, or making films, or or, or whatever it is photographs, paintings, weavings, whatever, you know, this is something for us, you know, to do, well, I, from my point of view, I do it for me. I don't necessarily do it for other people to enjoy. If other people enjoy it, that's fine, that's great. But frankly, I'm doing this for me to fill that void um, where Josh is no longer here. And You know, what I would say about the grief retreats that we run, which are residential, there's something about gathering together, but we notice that when people arrive and they're active in creative grief retreats, they, they tend to say, I'm not staying. It's a mistake. I shouldn't be here. I'm going home. And we say, that's fine. <laughs> and people do stay, but they don't believe it's possible, for example, to make a new photograph out of a, an old photograph. It's all about continuing bonds. You know, it takes confidence. It takes, it takes belief in yourself to do that. Continuing bonds is such a challenge, but yet it's fundamental to everything, it seems, that we do. Um, and the grief retreats seem to be a safe space for people to come and learn that. And they prove to themselves that something that they thought was impossible, I mean, even to just stay for the weekend or even for an hour is a huge, a big enough challenge when you're so traumatized and alone. And out of that, there's so much laughter and often dancing. You know, it's strange what happens on a grief retreat. You know, we've been amazed at how people have responded and what they've created. And they, the most important point about this is they have been amazed at what they've created. Something new that they take away and that they can actually hold. And that is the sort of symbol of this idea of the continuing bond that you internalize. And it becomes, again, woven into the fabric of yourself and with that, the edges get less jagged with the passing of time. And yes, you know, nine years on, it's still excruciating. Sometimes at Christmas for me or on the anniversary of Josh's death, which was, you know, the beginning of this week, I thought, I am so down. I feel so low. Nine years. Come on, Jane. But uh, then I reminded myself, just go with it. And I feel stronger again. But when you're in the midst of it, you have to hang on to the belief that you can survive. And I think creativity and doing and being active for us is what has helped. So we're going to be wrapping up very shortly. Is there anybody who is sitting on a question that's going to regret it if they walk out of here without saying it this evening? Anyone who'd like to make a comment or ask a question? Yeah, Ruth, down the back there. Rita, thanks. Hi guys, sorry. Um, I just wanted to say I thought it was amazing the way those people spoke to you guys in the interviews. They were so raw. Um, it's it's a rare thing to see people speak that that um, in that raw way mm -hmm. in a documentary. And and obviously it was because they were speaking to you guys and you were, you know, they were relating to your grief. But um, the bits that made me laugh and I could relate to were when they swore. You know, it was just the language was so raw. And um, 
it made me think about you know how grief makes it gives you kind of a brutality it gives a brutality to your language and and this seems like a really frivolous question but i just wondered um because i can relate to that so you guys swear like sailors at home <laughs> i'm not answering that <laughs> ruth <laughs> fuck off <laughs> that's the answer great question I think you've got the sense of us and the measure of us. <laughs> so on that lovely note. <laughs> thanks for that question. So just to say a big thanks to all of you for coming here and particularly to Jane and Jimmy once more for bringing all of you, every bit of you, to Greystones tonight and for sharing this with us. Um, it's going to ripple and resonate for weeks with people here, I'm sure. And it's a real gift you're giving to the, the bereaved and the grieving. Thank you, Jane and Jimmy. Thank uh, you. So just a couple of words. Um, shapesofgrief.com. It's a podcast with... Uh, I've done an interview with Jane here. If anyone would like to listen to that, episode nine on parental bereavement... There's lots of other episodes as well that look at all sorts of different types of grief, separation, spousal bereavement, all sorts of ways that people grieve. And it can be really helpful, as the lady down the back said, just to feel a little less isolated, to hear somebody talking about an experience that's very similar to yours. Um, so please do check it out. Also, the Good Grief Project in the UK, as Jane said, they run events, they run bereavement uh, weekends, bereavement retreats for parents who have lost a child and, you know, fly over, go meet Jane and Jimmy again. Their next retreat is booked out, but there's one coming up, I think, in September, which still has places left. Um, so big thanks again to Ross here um, for facilitating us tonight. It's been a very moving evening. I'm sure you'll all agree with that. And I hope that you know, the main thing that you will leave here with tonight is a sense of hope. And, you know, while the grief was palpable in the movie, the love was stronger, like such a sense of love. So go out there and care for the people who are in your lives and uh, enjoy your life because it's short and none of us know what's around the corner. Go out and live it. You know, make amends where you have to. Enjoy, love, eat, play. Don't take yourself for granted. Don't take each other for granted. Yeah, I hope that you'll, you'll take something really positive with you from this evening. And can Did you we want just to say something? We could we just say a huge thank you. What an amazing audience. I mean, really, really lovely. The atmosphere has been incredible, and people are just so available to, I think, opening up to this. And it takes courage, but it's really about love. It's not about death. Um, so thank you to every one of you. Thank you. And thanks to Liz and to the Whale Theatre, which is blooming brilliant. Thank you, Liz. Safe home, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You're not alone. Once again, please do consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, and we rely on your support to keep us going. The music was written by Silly Wizard and performed by Sue Hart and Martin Craddock, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well and take very good care. The storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing. The spray hung like jewels in her hair. Need the rock, the rock of that desolate landing. Oh, as though there were none, she stood there.
to the go